2: from the Times and the Sunday Times. There are a lot of tired people around at the end of the Six Six Nations, those who were on the field and those who were off the field. I found it just one of the greatest and we're here to get stuck into it and go through it today. My guests are special ones. Alan Dimmick's in the studio with me. Now, Ed, Al is editor of Rugby World. I think, Al, there have been eight editors of Rugby World. Is that approximately correct? You're
3: digging into the, the annals of history here, Steve. But I am. I I'm going to trust you... you. You've worked for Rugby World a
2: lot longer than I have, so I'm going to trust you on that one. I I, I worked for them a lot earlier than you did, let's put it that way. Rugby World, of which Al is, uh, is um, the editor, was founded in 1960, so I think that puts them up to nearly 63 years of great service. So it's every month, don't miss it. Big Al is always worth, always worth a read, that's Rugby World. I'll, I'll, tell what, you... I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'm glad
3: that you've said that, Steve. I'm going to feel particularly guilty now when I say that as soon as this call is over, I'm going to be
2: chasing you for your column. That's funny, Al, because I was going to uh, see if you could double the contributors' pay rate. But anyway, we'll come to that when all the readers are dispersed. We can have that. Um, we can have that conversation. Uh, also, in our um, investigations of the Six Nations, we'll be um, going to Dublin where a, a non-gloating Peter O'Reilly, our Irish rugby correspondent, will be there. Pete's got a lot to say, and he can tell us how the, how the the proceeds of the celebrations. Don't forget, the Six Nations may have ended, but it didn't end because on Saturday, it's the women's Six Nations, TikTok Six Nations, I think it's called this year, and Jessica Hayden, our expert, and I won't say this once she's there, but in my opinion, one of the best young journalists in the sport. She'll be joining us. Then we'll be going on to God or Goddess of the Week. Al, impressions of just the last weekend, uh, really helter-skelter. So much happening. Sending off here. Great play there. Ireland, Grand Slam champions.
3: Uh, And fitting Grand Slam champions, I think you have to say, Steve. I mean, we'll get into it. Just a phenomenal tournament. I've enjoyed it immensely. The, I think, looking back, Ireland versus France was as good as this sport gets and just great entertainment all round and even just little bits and pieces here and there. You know, we'll focus intensely on Ireland and of course we're going to talk about that red card. But just little moments that are interesting, like just even just to look back at Italy and say for every game that Italy were in, it held our interest for as long as possible. I mean, Italy could have won that game against Scotland in the last round. How many times in years gone by have we seen, oh, look, it's Scotland versus Italy in the last round as a sort of afterthought, and we'll just get that out of the way before the the real games kick off. That one held our attention. Scotland left it to the very death to get their bonus point try. Just good fun all round. I'm I'm just interested to see what the reflections are of of Peter O'Reilly after this, whether it's it's relief, whether it's that last one was just to get over the line to get it done and now we look forward, or, or where we are with it all. I don't know, what did you
2: make of it, Steve, at the end? Uh, well, the, the, just fantastic Six Nations, loads and loads of debate. And the reason why we've got to um, we've got to discuss that that sending off that red card, Al, is because it seems to me that if you were English, you, th- you thought it was harsh. If you were Irish, you didn't think it was harsh, which is really the wrong way to go about safety issues. But anyway, look, all of it was w- wonderful. I feel like having a, just a few hours off now before I write my rugby world column, which I'll be going straight on to. Stay with us. We'll get Peter O'Reilly, we'll get Jess Hayden, and we'll keep talking Six Nations rugby for both sexes. OK, as promised, we're now with Peter O'Reilly. I don't know if anyone's off on up on their Irish cricket. Peter is a distinguished international Irish cricketer, and I can tell you that he wasn't gloating on Saturday night and racing around the streets, singing the field of Athenry. Rye. He was having a quiet meal in a nice restaurant with a few of us, which which actually we really enjoyed, Peter. But you were fairly quiet on Saturday. But inside, after all the ups and downs of Irish rugby, you must have been joyous.
4: Yeah, it's um, I I, I was thinking about the bigger picture, if you like. Um, the first game that I was sent to, uh, first Six Nations or Five Nations game, as it was then, that I was sent to report on was in was in 1995. It was um Ireland hosting England at Lansdowne Road. And I remember that uh, England won, I think, 20 points to eight and Irish supporters were probably secretly quite pleased. Uh, England were on their way to uh, another Grand Slam, their third Grand Slam of the 90s. And Ireland just about avoided a a wooden spoon. So we were on the cusp of professionalism back then. It looked like a disastrous thing at first for Irish rugby, but now it seems like the best thing that could have happened for, for Irish rugby.
2: Let's, um, let's go back to a sort of wider picture of of where all this came from, but um before we go on to I know Al's very got strong views on the um on the red card peter um it was it was fashionable in the week before the game to think oh for Irish people think, oh blimey, you know England might come out fighting they might they might be we might even lose this a were either not quite at their best in, in terms of the brilliance of them play against France. But B, would you agree with me that they were never ever going to lose it?
4: Well, certainly it was hard to see how Ireland were going to concede a try against that England team. They did a, they did of course concede one at the end, but it was from it was from a mall. Couldn't see Ireland's defense being beaten out wide. They or in midfield. I mean, they have the best defensive record of the tournament, as you know. England were a pretty blunt instrument, uh, and Ireland were able to produce probably their weakest performance of the tournament and still get a bonus point. And that, that says something. I mean, afterwards, there was a, a mixture of euphoria, but also slight bewilderment that Ireland hadn't played that well and yet had still won convincingly. There is the red card to take into to account how, how that affected the result. I'm not so sure either. As you mentioned in your match report, Steve, um, Ireland had probably just turned a corner there. Um, it's reassuring. That Andy Farrell should look at it and say great results, great achievement, but we're nowhere near where we need to be.
3: Peter, but- just to jump in here, you know, I, I think you're right. It was it was very evident. I mean, to see Hugo Keenan slicing balls into touch, I, I can't remember ever seeing that before. And Tag Furlong just seemed to have greased mitts for some reason. But how reassuring is it that no matter how jittery everyone else is, you've got Johnny Sexton at fly half? Yeah, I, I wondered about his mental state
4: before the game. Media duties uh, meant that he had to face the media on, on the Wednesday before the game and he was clearly uncomfortable about him being th- the story about about O'Gara's Six Nations record, all that sort of thing. It seemed like he almost wanted to get it all over with when he took that quick tap penalty and whatever, 10 minutes in, whenever it was. Ultimately, though, uh, he has so much experience of that situation and it tends to bring the best out in him. Yeah, it's a question of whether he can stay on the pitch, he managed to stay on the pitch for about, I think, it was seventy-three minutes. The question now, looking further ahead, is you know can can uh, the medical staff keep him in reasonable nick to get to the knockout stages of the World Cup? Because no matter how much depth they have, uh, Andy Farrell has at his disposal, that's still the that's still an issue. The backup at number ten is still an issue. Ireland are. Significantly stronger,
2: significantly more intelligent when Sexton is on the pitch than when he isn't. Hey, that's uh, Johnny Sexton, what a Irish sporting hero he will go will down as. Just before we get a little bit more into the game, fellas. Um, there was an incident at the end of the first half, as we all know, when um, Freddie Stewart, after protracted discussions, was sent off. Uh, the background, as we all know, is that the World Rugby Authority is is completely almost panicking because there is the threat of a huge court case around because they did not fulfil effectively their duty of care to players. So that is why the the balance now when these decisions are there appears to be in favour of clearing the player off, which is what happened to Stewart. Al, um, I know you've spoken about this on the Ruck before. What was your impression? Because it, there is a fusillade of, of comments on social media.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I actually sought out a former elite match official who's still very much in the game to find out, you know, off the record what match officials are talking about. And what I got back was, is that could it have, should it have been a red card? Probably not. Did Jacko Piper, the referee, have any other options? Probably not. And that's where we are with the game at the moment. So, you know, we can all talk round and round. And I find myself in real time watching and going, Freddie Stewart. In the split second that that happened, did he have an option? In my head, I'm thinking, well, actually, it seems incredibly unnatural to turn your shoulder in in that situation. He could have, you know, he could have attempted to make a normal tackle and gone, oh God, sort of like you know, played from there. Certainly, if you get your hands on another player, you can look after them a bit better. Turning his shoulder seemed incredibly unnatural. But who am I to judge? That's that when it happened at such a speed. Had it been a yellow card, I don't think. Uh, speaking to quite a few people in Ireland as well, had that been a yellow card, would there have been a huge groundswell of people claiming it should have been a red? I'm not sure as many as we think. But to go back to what the official told me, did Jacko Piper have any option in the current structures? Doesn't look like it, does it? What, when you
2: say that, Al, are you saying that actually this is all set down and it's almost like a remote control from World Rugby when these things happen?
3: Well, I mean, this is going slightly off topic, but it's topic adjacent is... I've been speaking to some people recently who say that if there's such a... There's a big carrot for match officials getting selected for big games, probably going to a World Cup, maybe getting knockout matches. Whatever certain people from certain test teams think, these referees are judged incredibly strict. They're hauled over the coals when they do their... When they do their reviews with their their, their line managers and their, their reviewers and people that look at their game intensely and they pull them up. Some people can get away with letting the game flow a bit more. Some people feel that they are under huge pressure to call everything. If you miss anything, you are getting absolutely hammered. So you call a surprising amount. It's why some people think that some younger referees, for example, are a bit happier to whistle than others. This one, it just seems like, felt like the, the, the match officials in this scenario were just like, well, we've we've got to go for, for this. It has to be that. It's
2: got to be the red card, and that's, that's the one. What, uh, Peter, from your point of view, whether or not the legality of the hit what it was certainly a hit because you know Ireland lost a player who who didn't come back what what was your what are your impressions now I'm sure you've seen it again what are yep. your impressions
4: my impressions i suppose are pretty similar to what they were in live in real time which was that's that's an unfortunate sort of rugby incident it isn't it wasn't a tackle so it was one of those you know the, every single incident that we end up talking about is is unique and you would hope that the refereeing of the game uh, would allow for interpret refereeing interpretation, but as you as you mentioned, the match officials were parroting the criteria that it seemed to drive everything. Was the the criteria or the the word that Alan used strictures, if you like? I have to admit that I didn't go straight home from the restaurant on on uh, on Saturday night, Steve. Uh, I did bump into some fans on the way home, some some Irish rugby supporters, and the feeling I got from them was that if it had been one of our players we would have been in high dudgeon about it. Some Irish supporters felt that, listen, Hugo Keenan was gone for the game um, and uh, there has to be payment for that, if you like. So a yellow seemed like a fair, would have been a fairer result. Um, The problem for me is that the match officials seemed incredibly jittery about making sure that they did make a mistake here and that all the boxes were ticked and that there was no room for interpreting uh, a one-off situation. And that, that lack of feel if you like was what worried or what would trouble me most about it can i just
3: can i just jump in here on uh, another point as well though is and steve used the language about you know the pressures that are coming and also you know worries about court cases and all that kind of thing the important thing for me is is that the way that we talk about brain injury and the way that we treat it is very much the important thing here so it's it's great to see that hugo keenan was taken off and he went through the process and didn't return to the game and that's the kind of thing that that if we can make it a positive which seems like a perverse way of looking at it that's also an important thing here the care of the athletes and looking after them and making sure that we we look after them long term is also as important as any of this if not more so so I just wanted to, to ring that. And uh, Stephen Much, who used to work work in Scotland, I know very well, I knew him from my time at Edinburgh. Uh, he's a physio with the, the Irish national team as well. And uh, just the way that him and his colleagues ha- have handled everything from this aspect just needs it off of the cap. Just thought I'd jump in there and say that.
2: That is very very fair point. I, I've i got some reservations myself. I mean, I don't quite know why you have this gathering of touch judges when it happens, because that, all you get then is a debate. I think it's far better to leave it to the referee and to the, to the TMOs, got all the picks up there. I'm not 100% sure if it does anyone any good by letting the cloud roar their heads off and showing it to them. But that that is a very non-journalistic thing to say. But I, I my great fear, and, and look, we've all lost players to injuries. We've all lost players that we loved to, to serious illnesses, uh, et cetera. So that's, that's what we've got to bear in mind. I also worried now that Unless they make it ultra clear, we're going to get some gigantic World Cup matches which are ruined. I mean, Saturday wasn't ruined by it, but we're going to get some which are, are ruined by the call. So that is, I think World Rugby ought to revisit it. They ought to try and make it m- with more clarity and explain themselves better afterwards. And then we might get um, not only safety, but clarity. And we might get these games going through. You do see just a bit, and I can't believe I say this: why the idea of a sort limited red card? Why they do it in, so, in the Southern Hemisphere? I wouldn't do that, but um, you know, you can sort of see why they do it. Anyway, the 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 I agree. I did say in the paper that I thought that see, it's easy to say this. I thought that Ireland had steadied, and and again, as Peter said, I couldn't see where an um, an English try was coming from. But um, the game as a whole, we have not said much about England well uh, we've been very critical of them, and rightly so there have been some real non-performances they were better, but were they significantly better
3: in the opening exchanges without you know without pulling the dagger out and and you know it was it was a, still a bit more cloak than dagger wasn't it at the start but you know there were there were promising signs it's probably the best game I've seen uh, for a while from Anthony Watson for example Manu two was played Manu two way Certainly, there was a sense of, more of a sense of comfort with Farrell at 10, and maybe a little bit more direction. But there's, there's a lot to do. And of course, there's clearly teething problems with that defence. I mean, the sheer volume of tries that England have conceded, you know, there's a lot of work to do there. Steve Borefoot came in. One of the points he made was, right from the start is, if you try to be better at everything, you'll get better at nothing. So they need to target what they need to get better at. I would like to know, right now, what, where the where those fixes come first because the chat was of stripping the game plan right back to make it as simple as possible to make England as more effective and then build from there. I'd like to know what is being circled as these are the key things to get better at and I wouldn't be surprised if defence is right at the top of that.
2: Yeah, I think you're right there because we've got Kevin Sinfield who's come in and created a huge impression by being a great lad very motivational you know, a Hercules on the marathon track. I think now Kevin, he needs to sort of settle down and um and do what he's actually there for because the the defence is 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 weak and it has become embarrassingly so. I mean, in my opinion, they they they're really struggling for back row balance. I think Jack Willis could be a great player, but I think if Jack is in one is one of your two, three back row men, then it dictates her, the the sort of choice that the other two players are. I think they're, 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 they're really struggling at number eight and in the middle of the lineout. although I thought Ribbons had a decent game. I thought the front row had their best time in the scrum for quite a long time. I mean, they, they got, I wouldn't say parity, but they were certainly competitive early on. But the reason why the game lacked attention, in my opinion, I'll come to preach on this in a minute, was you just could not see where England were going to surge back into the game with the two tries they needed. Jamie George, they did score a good drive, drive in the end, but Peter, if you'd been there, Andy Farrell, you wouldn't have been in a state of panic through the second half because of the England attack, would you? Uh, no, I, listen, I think it's it's no coincidence that the top three teams in
4: the, in the table are coached by the three most settled coaching teams. And it's also worth pointing out that when England do have the players uh, for an extended period in the lead up to the World Cup, they will... Have an opportunity uh, to do things like, for example, get a little bit more sophistication in in attack, perhaps to get fitter, um, so that they can finish games stronger. They'll also have more players back, as far as I understand. There's quite a few players who are who are due to come back in, and um, they'll have had time together. And that's the real strength of um, of this Irish team uh, is that. I mean, cohesion was the buzzword in last year's tournament. Now it's all about the alignment of the Irish system that you hear about. But it's true, you know, you've you've um once you have a settled coaching team that gets quality time with its players, and you build competition for places, um, then you've got something to work with. Uh, In answer to your question, Steve, uh, I think once Dan Sheehan had done his stuff, um, and then the Robbie Henshaw really the Robbie Henshaw try was the one that would have allowed everybody to to relax a little bit there was never really a, a sense of england are going to hurt us at any stage here which you get with which you get when you're playing against france for example um england did, didn't present uh, sort of present that threat as a counter attacking force or anything like that at all so there was i suppose yeah a little bit of um assurance there that that ireland would get the job done because they tend to finish their uh, games strongly
3: Can I I throw things forward to the Rugby World Cup a little bit? Because Fabian Galti made a point uh, in his presser after the the France game that he says, everyone should be looking at us. You know, all the attention should be on us. He was basically almost courting the favourite tag. Now, that is a thing... (laughs) Uh, particularly where, where I'm from particularly where Peter's from where the idea of being favourites for anything is it makes us feel disgusting <laughs> how do you think Ireland will deal with the mentality because they're world number one okay the bookies have still got France as favourite and then New Zealand slightly ahead of Ireland however much stock you put in what the bookmakers are saying and obviously that's just where the money's going do you think this Ireland team is equipped to deal with the the front runner tag because as you said there were jitters at the start of this this game against England well
4: yeah two things strike me Alan, first of all Johnny Sexton, I've spoken to him about this. He hates the idea that's out there that Ireland have a mental block about World Cup quarterfinals and that sort of thing. Uh, He would look at it slightly more uh, objectively and say, "Okay, we made a mess of it in 2011. That was the last really strong Irish team, the O'Driscoll team, Paul O'Connell. But in 2015, massive injury problems going into a quarterfinal against Argentina. And then... Pretty nasty draw for a quarterfinal draw in 2019 in Japan. So even though Ireland underperformed, uh, they were always going to be up against either South Africa or New Zealand in the quarterfinal. I don't think that's going to be. It's not going to be a question of some old psychological scar. The second thing is that Ireland have been to New Zealand and have gone one test down in a test series, and they've come back and won two one. There is a a togetherness and a certainty about them that I haven't seen in our Irish team. Uh, I remember before going out to New Zealand on tour, I was thinking if they nick a test here, that's the most we can hope for, but that's based on, uh, a very ancient sort of notion whereby we're happier as underdogs. This Irish team, I, I suspect, I believe actually are happy in the role of favorites. They've been world number one teams since last July. Uh, they've looked very comfortable in that role and, uh, they will go into that World Cup thinking that if um, it's a tough draw, absolutely, but think what we can do if we do get to a quarterfinal, if we do get to a semifinal, uh, and I think part of that goes down to the work that they've done with their uh, their performance coach Gary Keegan, who's who's had enormous success with in other in other codes, but also a lot of it is down to Andy Farrell, who has just infused this belief and this togetherness. Uh, so I I don't think there's going to be any jitters. I think um, they will bring enormous self-belief.
2: Al, can I just ask you this, and Peter, just, just maybe one more point each on on this game, but Al, I'd like to come back to you after I spoke to Peter with one more question. That is, where do you see the positions and possibly even the names of, of, of people where England could now go to reinforce the squad? If you could give that some thought. But Peter... Um, a long time ago, um, you, you were telling me that um, Greg Feek, um, a scrummaging expert, had taken over from um, uh, whoever was the previous one, who you probably couldn't name, and uh, at a time when John Hayes was um, at, at what could be called a career peak for Ireland, but there weren't many other props around, and, and ever since the Feek era, uh, the props have been coming out of your ears. Is it that sort of... For, that? look that planning that long-term planning that has been a factor in Ireland's revival as well because they do seem to have an answer at the moment for every weakness
4: yeah they have but I would still say that the happiest surprise the biggest surprise package of the tournament is probably been Finley Bealem and then Tom O'Toole at Tighthead as well yeah because you know coming coming into the Six Nations if you said okay where are the weak spots Number ten—that's a given. That's partly to do with the fact that you've got this generational player there at the at the top. Andrew Porter and uh, Tig Furlong are probably the, the second and most and third most important players in the team. Now Porter has been ridiculous. He played seventy-six minutes in round four. Then six days later, he plays the full eighty against England. But a tight head—the start of the tournament. No Tig Furlong. We're going to Cardiff thinking this is going to this is potentially a massive problem. And Bielham plays out with skin. He plays incredibly well against France also. And then when, when Tom O'Toole has to come off the bench, uh, he exceeds expectation as well. It is down to to planning and to good systems, as you as you suggest. So it is all about alignment. It is all about having those structures and, and, and making sure that you have a depth chart that um, doesn't let you down.
2: Fair enough. Al, um, um, England improvements, who have you seen or who you think might fit in there just just to give them a boost. I
3: th- I, well, I think they need guys being fit to come back. Yeah. I, I mean, you were talking earlier about England and, and the pack, and I, I find myself sitting there going like, Courtney Laws f- fixes a few of those problems if he's fit and in the team. I think, you know, Peter was talking about having extended period together, and we're going to hear... <laughs> Buckle yourselves in, we're going to hear months about how this is the fittest X team has been in their entire lives Because we've got Rugby World Cup camps coming up But having Courtney Laws and Owen Farrell in with the England team for literally months Is going to have a positive impact, you'd have to say Because they're just leaders and time together helps Um, But also you've got Tom Curry needs to come back Uh, I think Luke Cowan-Dickey would be a phenomenal option to have Off the bench That they that they haven't had Alex Mitchell I think Is well overdue A start at nine mm. I think He's got to get His opportunity there Then it's about A debate of certain positions Can Zach Mercer Come in from France And get a go Do you want to try him out I'm interested to see Where they go with that And then the other one Is the option off the bench In the front row Bevan Roder, or Rapava Ruskin Do you want to give them A go off the bench at loose head Those are options But the
2: the big The big headline there Is just You need key players Coming back fit i I. I think that was a great that was a great list I maybe a personal choice but um, Mitchell yes definitely but um they, they need someone to make them quicker when they want to play quick they need someone and, and and I think I'd love to see Harry Randall there I absolutely love to Al uh just before Peter came on you were talking about Italy but Pete um Italy have always been a formality but not not, not even though they lost all their games certainly not a formality and and could have uh were one yard from glory against Scotland. So, was is that one of the highlights for you that they've come to be truly competitive?
4: Absolutely. the The game that Ireland played in Rome was their one other major hiccup uh, on the on the road to a slam, and uh, it was nothing. It was partly to do with with missing quite a few players and being a little bit uh, off key to begin with. But a lot of it was down to how well Italy played. So, Italy not only are they uh, are they stronger across the board? they're good to watch you know they play good rugby. I mean it's certainly I've been I've been blessed you know to to follow Ireland um in that the quality of the rugby has been so good but Italy really they they contributed hugely to that game in Rome it was a it was a great spectacle um you feel if they could get get themselves sorted at number nine, maybe one or two other positions uh that they can become a real a real force uh, as you say, they finish up down the bottom of the table like most of us predicted they would and yet none of us predicted how well they would play and, uh, and how promising they look.
2: Al, um, you're, you're brave lads. Um, in some areas of some matches, they looked a really, really good team and certainly may not, wouldn't be a pushover for Ireland during the World Cup. I mean, if I said like um, uh, Duan Van der Merva has now come through to world class. Hugh Jones, is, in my opinion, has bounced back. So, well, it could be considered world-class. Finn Russell, clearly. Were you pretty happy? Uh, Or would you like to have seen one more victory somewhere?
3: Yeah, I mean, the one more victory one is an interesting one. After the game at the weekend, uh, Jamie Ritchie said, four and a half good performances. You know, he he said they'd take that. I think against Ireland, that second half display was, you know, what a golden opportunity that was, considering how close they were. And one of Scotland's issues of the Six Nations has been maintaining momentum. And in fact, that that works in a, a s- several ways, because at the start of the tournament, you know, it was very few entries to the 22. They were coming away with tries or points. And that's that rate slowed down a bit by the end of the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, against France, I mean, what could have been if they'd taken that one line out when they were four points behind France in Paris? You know, on the attack with the last few minutes Who knows what what could have happened there But I think it's clear that there's A T-ring structure to the six nations at the moment And Ireland and France are, are above the others I think Scotland are on, on the outside there And then, you know, teething problems With new coaching setups with the other sides We'll see where they come through But because of that, we've had the competition Which has made the tournament so exciting um, And it's for Scotland in particular I think it's been, you know, a big step forward Maybe... A quarter of a step back um, in the big games against against the bigger teams. And just to praise Ireland again, the quality of the chaos, of what they showed when there was that chaos against Scotland to keep their heads just goes back to the mentality, uh, the winning mentality that Peter was talking about earlier and that there was no panic there and that they really, when Scotland should have taken advantage, it was Ireland that were surging.
2: Just go briefly on to the, to the final game, um, another richly entertaining game. I think France were just relaxing. Um, Wales have got a much more important fixture in Aberavon this weekend when they vote to get rid of the the Blazers that have murdered Welsh rugby for about nearly 100 years. And uh, there's a huge vote coming up for which the union needs 75%. This meeting is is absolutely colossal. It really is a question of if the WOU don't get their their new board through with, with, with far more of women business people, dynamic dyna- dynamic people, industrialists, rather than the silly old Blazers who, who all they've ever done is beaten be Blazers, one then it's turn out the lights time. Um, Peter, it's been great to have you. Um, we'll uh, don't muck up the God or the Goddess now because you've done very well so far, but um, it'll be great to have you. I'm sure we'll be speaking uh, Ireland's World Cup chances quite a few times before the World Cup, so uh, we'll wish you happy rest of the season. And uh, would you now reveal your god or goddess of the week, please?
4: Well, I'll be, I'll be murdered if I don't give it to Johnny Sexton. I know it's a pretty predictable answer, but I've been following his career for 15 years or thereabouts. I know how much Saturday meant to him. And uh, I thought it was it was quite funny when he, when he landed uh, the conversion of, I think it was Henshaw's try and there was a little, a skip. It was what you might call, it was like the equivalent of a, of a a dad dance, uh, it was slightly ancient and bockety. And uh, Andy Farrell afterwards said it was a bit embarrassing, but you could show, uh, you could see from it what it what it meant to to Sexton. So I think um, Bill, there's no option; it has to be it has to be Johnny for uh, for the God of the Week.
2: Johnny, it is Peter O'Reilly of the Sunday Times. Thank you for joining us. Cheers, guys. All the best. Thanks, Peter and Al on the Six Nations. And quickly now to move on to. Another other Six Nations. It's England-Scotland to kick off the Women's Six Nations this weekend. We're going to be joined shortly by Jess Hayden to talk through it. Great excitement now in the women's game and throughout rugby because the TikTok Women's Six Nations begins this coming weekend. And as promised at the start of the programme, we've got none other than Jess Hayden, personally one of my favourite journalists and if Jess says it's Tuesday in a copy, it's Tuesday. <laughs> Welcome, Jess. No doubt you're excited excited about it. It's coming off the back of a World Cup. England just came up a little bit short there, so a lot of the onus on them. What are your thoughts in general, and what are your thoughts about likely winners?
5: Thanks, Steve. That was a lovely introduction, I have to say. The, the Six Nations is so exciting for many reasons. I think the the biggest reason for me is that this is the first time that there'll be a full-time professional player in every squad you know we we only in 2019 were England the first to go full-time professional and now every squad in the six nations has at, at least some full-time professional players which is hugely exciting and just shows the level of growth that the women's game has had in the past few years
2: I'll, um Scotland um always seem to be, over the last few years, incredibly passionate about it, carrying on playing till the end, even though they're well down. But is there any uh, evidence that you found, um, concrete evidence, that they are on their way to becoming more competitive? I mean, they're due a win,
3: aren't they? They, I I don't believe they've had one since they defeated Colombia in the World Cup qualifier. So they've run some games pretty close. I mean, there was one point between them and Ireland last season in the Six Nations, but they need to get that monkey off the back and get a win. It's interesting because Rachel Malcolm, um, Scott Captain, made a really interesting point at the, the Six Nations launch last week in that things will take time just because people have been more professionalized for, for a short period of time doesn't mean that they're suddenly going to be able to challenge a team like England. So Jess is right, again, that England have, have lost some, some key players. And in France, I've been speaking to some people in France and there's some murmurs that like, okay, maybe there's an opportunity there. Looking at their backline, who's who's going to be leading them that that back line, for example. But Rachel Malcolm spoke really well about how there's still that little bit of a gap, and and that's got to be
2: made up. Yeah, that's a fair point. Just a um, couple of things. Uh, what you might call the opposite end of the spectrum for England. First of all, um, all the all the uh, indications are even this early that when they play France, which what may well be the the climax. There's going to be the biggest crowd that the women's game has seen. I mean that that must be f- such an encouragement for actually everyone involved in it.
5: Yeah, the 2022 Women's Six Nations broke all types of different records for engagement and 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 fans coming to coming to watch as well. But the the current record for a crowd is 42,579, and that was at the Rugby World Cup final in New Zealand. Currently, I think the, the latest update was that 34,000 tickets had been sold for, for England-France in that final match for, for both teams in the Six Nations, which we expect to probably decide the winner. So if 34,000 tickets have been sold before the tournament's even got started, I think that it's definitely on track to break that record. And what a phenomenal way for Simon Middleton to bow out as England head coach if it's in a, a packed Twickenham. And I think it has to be over... Forty something thousand for them to open the top tier at Twickenham, so it could be really full. And we might, we might be there. That this this match was put in Twickenham Stadium as as a chance to see how full Twickenham can get, with the ambition being to sell out Twickenham for the twenty twenty five Rugby World Cup final. So it'd be interesting as a yardstick to see where we are, how many seats can be filled for a Six Nations match, and then kind of try, you know, how can they build on that then for twenty twenty five.
2: And actually, before we go on to Simon Middleton, uh, it's good news that uh, Newcastle uh, are expecting a really good crowd this weekend.
5: Sold out. Sold out, oh. match. Isn't that fantastic?
2: It's unbelievable. Well done, every, all the Geordies and everyone and the the Scottish Borderers for, for doing that because that is a colossal thing and uh, great for geographical spread, great mm. for uh, a great local rugby club as well. But, but this, just go on to Simon Middleton. In my opinion, Jess, and not beating about the Bush, I think England should have won in Belfast in the final a few years ago. I thought they were tactically outdone, especially in the second half. I also think that they were done when they should have won or could have won this time. What if that had been a men's team with someone like Eddie Jones in charge or Steve Borthwick, Alan myself and all the media would have been really, really on his back. And in my opinion, I am really taken aback that he is carrying on after the World Cup because this is the time when a new coach should clearly have been in charge.
5: So I I completely get what you're saying. I think the important thing is that after the World Cup, so England put um, contract extensions into, I think it was June, for the, the coaches in the England squad, just so that it wasn't on their mind going into to that World Cup. But... Of course, it's the second time that Simon has taken the squad to a World Cup and, and then fall just short. I think it's really important that that game, the the final, it was explosive. There was a, Lydia Thompson's red card, obviously cost England a lot. And it went down to the final play in the game when New Zealand snatched it. Simon has been part of the revolution of bringing professionalism into England and get, getting that 30 match unbeaten streak. So... I will be sorry to see him go. I think that he has been fantastic for England, but I, he accepts this as well. And we, we've put it to him at, in press conferences as well, that is it time for a new voice? And he says, absolutely. The, the players need a fresh voice. They need fresh vision. But one thing that I really hope carries on is Simon has always been very open to players being involved in the game plan. So he has a strategy group and senior players will, will join Simon in discussing a game plan and creating the way that they're going to win a match going down to the detail with analysts to get video and analysts of analysis of other teams and, and building that game plan together and that I think is one of the key reasons England have been so successful so when a new coach comes in and I, they're you know they have being interviewed at the moment and it's a. It's meant to be announced really during the Six Nations. I hope that whoever that person is takes that on board because there are some fantastic rugby brains in that squad, and I think they're, that's they need to be utilised.
2: Uh, I'll uh, will that catch on. I can imagine uh, Finn Russell and Gregor uh, Townsend had slight problems when they got together to discuss uh, tactical plans in the in the team room.
3: It's a, it's an interesting discussion for rugby at large, isn't it? Because. Uh, the band of coaches that we see at the top end of the game a lot of them tend to be control freaks don't they so it's it's kind of interesting to to hear that that side of things but, but certainly just going back to the, the original question Steve is you know there's a there's a sense that we're going to be saying goodbye to a lot of people and maybe this is just an opportunity I mean it's a bit of a roadshow for England isn't it and it's by designing this one going to different stadiums to try and win over fans at different parts of the country but it, you get that great sense that this is us saying goodbye to Sarah Hunter, for example, and what a moment that will be to be playing up in Newcastle for that. So whilst there might be, from a coaching point of view, a sense that the bureaucratic wheels didn't get spinning quick enough, it's it's got that sense of a farewell tour about it, doesn't
5: it? Yeah, actually, when we were doing the Women's Rugby World Cup ruck specials, we had Sarah Hunter on and she exclusively revealed to us that this was going to be her last Rugby World Cup and... So I I put the question to her, you know, are you retiring after this World Cup? And she said, no, I haven't waited this long for England to play Newcastle to retire now. So that obviously kind of has me thinking that potentially this is her last six nations. I really hope not. She's been an absolute wonder for the game and for women's rugby. Um, But yeah, so I'm potentially wondering whether this is the the last six nations that we will see Sarah Hunter in an England shirt.
2: This just go on to something very important. Then we'll just whiz through just a couple more games, and we'll and then we'll we'll carry on. Al, um, um, in, in terms of development of the women's game, does it matter? Would it matter to you as to whether the? And I'll ask just the same question as to whether the new England coach is a woman.
3: Uh, I think from a performance point of view, England will just want the the best person in charge. But I think it would send a fantastic message if there was because how few. Women's coaches, women coaches, do we see in the game at all? You know, French. We've got through circumstances, we've got co coaches, and and Gil Mino's there yeah. flying the flag for France. It would be amazing to see that for England, wouldn't it? But I, who
2: knows what they're looking for on this fantastical um, hunt for new coaches? Uh, I'll um, I'll go next, then Jess. You can have the casting vote as the expert. I think categorically, England should be coached by a woman purely because it will. I don't I don't mean someone who's not up to it because they are up to it there is so many really intelligent really rewarding and dynamic opinions around amongst women coaches I think it would send a clarion call of ear-splitting loudness to the game and I even know who it should be so uh Jess um Without putting any... uh on. you can't dangle that out there and then yeah. not name who you think... OK, well, I will at the end. But uh, Jess, where do you stand?
5: I think that it has to be the best person for the job. Absolutely. I would be thrilled to see a woman take that step. And I've been very open. I wrote for The Times about this that I think it has to be Giselle Mather. I think she is a phenomenal coach. What she has done in both the men's and the women's game has been phenomenal. She's a trailblazer, even though she'd hate me calling her that, I think. For me, that that has to be who the coach is. Steve, I wonder if that is the same person you were thinking of.
2: Oh, it might be. (laughs) I think Giselle is the one of the people, well, there are a lot of them, but when I sit next to her, I always realise how little I know about rugby she is a brilliant spokeswoman for the game a brilliant coach uh no one's fool and i would love it to be giselle okay just very briefly uh jess who do you fancy this weekend wales island england scotland italy france it looks from um well wales island is going to be competitive who do yeah. you fancy in those games
5: Wales Island is a tough one to call. Wales without um, Captain Shuan Lillicrap, but I think Hannah Jones, um, who stepped up into that captaincy, um, has a, a really strong future ahead of her in the game. Also about Alicia Butchers and Donna Rose through injury, who are Alicia Butchers was one of the standout players at the World Cup. And Jazz Joyce, I believe, is with the Sevens. So it'd be interesting if she's named on the on the team sheet. I don't expect her to be. Wales just have so much more time together. They have centralised contracts, so they, they train a lot together as Ireland are all split up, in whether they're in Ireland or, or elsewhere. So I see I see Wales as the, the strongest side there, but that is going to be close and very competitive, and that, that's probably the most competitive match of this weekend. England versus Scotland, I see England winning that one. Um, it's potentially closer than it might have been in the past few years, but I, I see England winning that. Then Italy-France, I I see France um, storming ahead on that one as well. So I think Wales-Ireland is the most competitive of the weekend.
2: So let's just um, wish all the teams brilliant success. Um, Al, Al, um, England-France, some of these games are so tight that you you would favour the home team. In the big one at Twickenham before, huge crowd, England England obviously the home team. So does that make England favourites, Al? yes
3: and i think they'd be favorites anyway at least that's that's the noises that i'm hearing um out of france there's the the efficiency that this england machine has played with over the years is what 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 spooks france who who played a a different style and you know just for what rugby philosophy it's going to be a fascinating watch anyway to watch the clash of styles clearly the two best teams in the competition you know this one's for all the marbles um you'd you'd imagine um just an exciting prospect altogether but I think
2: England edge of that for sure okay jess your winner please
5: I think I think England are gonna win this six Nations championship will it be a grand slam to be decided i, I need to see France um France play because they're without some players Jessie trua she's her final um six nations um so I just I want to I want to see them first before I can say whether I think this is going to be a a grand slam success for England, but it will certainly, I think, come down to that final match, as Al says, and um, for me, at the moment, on both of the teams' form, I think it will be England. That's
2: the Women's Six Nations beginning this weekend. All the teams, as Jess says, have a, a professional influence in there. Most of the teams, are, in fact, all of the teams are improving. Hopefully, the, 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 the slightly weaker teams improve rapidly. Let's hope the top of it is brilliant. Let's hope Newcastle has a great day. And let's hope it just explodes onto the wider consciousness as a process which has already started. And I just think it's absolutely gorgeous that someone in the tournament can't play because they're having a baby. Uh, Abby Ward, I've not covered that concept in a lot of men's rugby, actually, but Abby Ward's having a baby. And what a magnificent reason, Jess, to drop out.
5: Absolutely. So Abby is coaching in the England squad. So her and Emily Scarrett, both out of play and Emily's injured and Abby's pregnant. So they're, they're actually coming into the, the England camp to do some coaching. So they are still around. Um, It's a lovely reason to have a player absent. And there's a lovely story that Abby told me recently about how her and her husband, Dave Ward, uh, ex-England player and also the head mm. coach of Bristol Bears Women, how they told the squad at Bristol Bears that... Abby was pregnant and they basically, Dave kind of got everyone, the whole team in the room and said uh, there's a new there's a new uh, signing, they're arriving in the pre-season, um, you all need to watch her back. Very close to myself and Abby, all of this and really built it up and everyone was like who is this and players were like thinking Oh am I sure it's going to get stolen by someone else and then they... Uh, brought up the picture of the ultrasound and said baby ward due pre-season 2023 yeah. yeah so it's very cute and i hope uh, that she's just the first of many players that because of this new maternity um policy that england rugby brought in i hope abby's just one of the first of many women who can now not wait until retirement to give birth or start her family and actually she she can just be kind of a, a new trailblazer
2: that's a great line well done and we look forward to The arrival of not only the Women's Six Nations, but also the young ward. Thanks, Jess, for joining us. Hopefully we'll have you back for round after round for what could be a fantastic event.
5: Thanks, guys.
2: Yet another big game on Saturday at the greatest stadium that there is, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And uh, I'll be attending to report on the big match between Saracens and Harlequins. There's a nice little bitter edge for you. It'll be a delight for me because the last 46 times I've been at Spurs, I spent my time fretting, gibbering, roaring at the manager and shouting, Give it to Harry! So uh, all that pressure will be gone this week. As a final uh, gesture, we're going to name our God or Goddess of the Week. From Peter O'Reilly, we had his missing brother, Johnny Sexton. Al, where where are you going for God or Goddess?
3: I mean, I was going to go Sexton, but actually I think I'm going to take this opportunity to give it to to Andy Farrell, just as a, a nod for the project that he's seen through. Um, you know, there was a period a couple of years ago where people were saying, "What is happening? What's what's the plan with this Ireland team? Why are you picking all these these old soldiers? Yada yada yada." And you know, we've given it a bit of patience and look where they are now. And he's making all the right noises heading towards the Rugby World Cup. So, uh, yeah, I just want to
2: nod appreciation to Andy Farrell for the job he's done with Ireland. Okay, that's a fair one. From Al- no one's going to argue with that, especially Irishmen. Uh, I'm going to stay Irish. I'm going to go into the forwards. I thought James Ryan had a monumental game for Ireland. I thought he was good when Ireland weren't very good and I thought he was brilliant. He's been on poor form the last couple of years, but James Ryan was right up there on the weekend with the great locks I've seen. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thanks for listening to us on The Ruck. Six Nations just starting for the women. The rest of the season had so much interest left in it and we'll be going all the way through right up until the World Cup.